Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Painting and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, I spend a lot of time, uh, well, these days and for the last few years, talking to people who are, um, in, well, in both Silicon Valley and in Washington, D.C., and all too frequently, the discussion revolves around uh, what one group doesn't understand about the other. Uh, it's sort of a fun game to play, I guess. And one of these days, I should probably set up bingo boards uh, of the common misconceptions that one coastal city has uh, about the other. Uh, and still, I think one of the best descriptions I've heard about the difference in views between DC and the Valley was one that when I first heard it initially struck me as completely backwards. And it was the claim that DC actually takes a long-term, big-picture view on things, while Silicon Valley takes a short-term, focused view on things. And considering how myopic DC often seems and how crazy futuristic the Valley often feels, this description sounded flipped. Uh, however, the person who told it to me, who had experience working in both places, explained what he meant more thoroughly, and it began to make some more sense. Uh, his argument was that, uh, when there's a problem in the world, people in D.C. tend to look at it as a challenge to create a single legislative solution, one big act to solve the one big problem forever. And then they move on and forget about it. In Silicon Valley, however, uh, while they may set a vision towards a distant future, they respond to big challenges, often with quick and dirty approaches, followed by ongoing iterations. If this step in this direction doesn't work so well, that's not a problem, let's try something different. The end result may seem big and world-changing eventually, but the day-to-day -day is focused on experimentation, data, uh, results, and iteration. When thought about that way, it actually made a lot more sense to me and made me wonder why we don't do more of that kind of uh, work in government. And so, of course, uh, I know that some of the answer to that is, is simply politics. Uh, getting something done in government can be difficult because of politics. But honestly, that's, I think, mostly just on the really big attention-getting issues. On lots of smaller things uh, that don't get covered by uh, cable news and talk radio, it does seem like we could take the more iterative uh, approach found in Silicon Valley and apply it to governments both big and small. Now, someone who has thought an awful lot about this, I think, is Jennifer Palka, uh, who founded and runs Code for America, the San Francisco-based nonprofit that has done tons of work over the years making government more transparent and connected. Uh, and she also spent a year as Deputy Chief Technology Officer uh, of the U.S. under President Obama, where she developed the U.S. Digital Services Program, which is the highly uh, successful program that helped to bring actual techies into government. Now, a key focus of hers uh, these days is delivery-driven government, which is her very smart approach to the problem that I just described in the intro, which is how do we get governments to know if what they're doing is actually working so that they can iterate and improve and provide better services to the public that they're supposed to be serving. Uh, so the question is, can we 
create something that is more akin to the way software development works in government. So, Jen, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm so delighted to be here, and thanks for that great and very thoughtful setup. And I'll play that bingo game with you anytime you want. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it will be a lot of fun. Now, since you've had feet in both of these worlds, uh, uh, do you think that that framing is accurate, that that is really the way that, that, that uh, government people look at things versus Silicon Valley people? I think it's largely accurate, though I will say I've had the request from people in Silicon Valley just as often that, um, you know, what is the big policy solution that's going to fix technology <laughs> in government? So that sense that we just need, um, you know, the, the one thing that's going to fix it all is not really limited to D.C. It's just that folks in D.C. think it's a policy solution um, and folks in um, folks in, in San Francisco think there'll be like one product will ship that will change everything roughly yeah i, I think uh, yeah i i mean it is obviously a big generalization to say that but um it, it is interesting to to see you know uh, overall how, how these different things work um and so i know that that you know you and certainly code for america have done a bunch of work on on making you know or trying to help governments often you know local city governments more delivery driven data driven um what is what does that tend to look like in your experience yeah that's a good question so we work with local governments we also then started working with a lot of counties and now we work with a lot of states because a lot of what's um really like the big glaring problems are these giant government programs that are actually delivered by states um, and often, especially in California, where we do some, but not all of our work, the states then devolve it to the count, the devolved administration of the program to the counties. And so part of what we are talking about is not so much like the application of technology to a problem, but more the ability to smartly use technology and other sources to get the data and insights that you need to know what's working and what's not. And I mean, this sort of speaks to your setup a little bit. It really isn't sort of one big thing. It's we don't know what's going on for users of a particular program at any given time. And so we don't actually know what's working and what's not. Um, let me bring that like a little bit more into reality and give you an example. Sure. Um, we have been running a, uh, well, I guess you'd call it a website. Uh, we call it a service for Californians who need food assistance for the past several years. Um, before we put up our site called getcalfresh.org, which um, you can go to, and if you know anybody who needs a little bit of help with food and, and might qualify for the program, please send them there. Um, but you can also just go test it out. So, so if you go there, you'll see that essentially it's a very streamlined um simple, clear, plain language, easy to use website. It uh, works on a mobile phone, um, which is really important because a lot of the people that are going to need food stamps don't have access to um, broadband, internet, you know, laptop, computer, laptop or desktop computer. Um, and uh, you, you can actually even take a photo of, say, your pay stub, which is part of what you need to prove that you're eligible for food stamps, using the camera on your phone, and it gets included in the application. And then um, 
it's a really pretty satisfying, relatively simple experience. Um, we then can text message with you uh, after you've hit submit and make sure you get all the rest of the pieces together so that you get from that point where you hit the application button to actually getting the benefit. But before we put up that website, there were a couple of different um, websites that the state offered, actually the counties offered in three different consortia that um, one of them, they're about all about the same, but about 50 pages long, 200 and something questions doesn't work on a mobile phone at all um, and doesn't really allow you easily to upload your documents. So you had an enormous number of people who needed the benefit, but if they couldn't make it into an office and wait for an hour in line and wanted to do this online, um, they really had very few options um, because it didn't, didn't work on mobile. So it, it's been a lovely opportunity to sort of show that a better front door to a program using sort of, you know, it's not fancy technology, it's just reasonable human-centered design that we iterated on a million times and continue to, to make sure um, that we're learning, you know, what keeps people from stopping in the process versus continuing go on, how explainable is it? Um, so the, the front door is better, but what's a lot better is the fact that when we're text messaging with our users over time, we actually know what's wrong with each county as it is doing the operations of its program. So tons of people hit go on the application. They actually are eligible, but things like uh, they need to do an interview over the phone to qualify. Well, the interview letters get sent out um, telling people that they're going to get a call on Tuesday at 2, but it reaches them on Wednesday, and they've already missed the interview. Uh, we find people have you know, thousands of different ways in which the operations of government programs fail their users. Um, actually, another good example is a lot of times the call that comes in from the county office is flagged as a spam call. Well, you're not going to pick up a spam call. So you miss that interview and you start over at the beginning of the process all over again. And that kind of data and insights about what's actually going wrong is how you make government programs better iteratively over time by seeing what's happening at the delivery level, which is just another way of saying, seeing what's happening with the users of the program. Mm -hmm. So that's really what we're advocating for is the use of technology in a very lightweight but human-centered way to understand how programs work and how they don't work. And it really matters. In California, for example, um, you would think that you know, Silicon Valley would be great at getting people signed up for a government program online. In fact, California, until relatively recently, was the second worst state in the union for participation rate in SNAP. Like, that's bad. Right. <laughs> um, that's not what you think California would do. And it, that also matters because SNAP is the program most highly correlated with better health and education outcomes for kids. So when you've got like almost half of the people eligible for the program not on it, that's a bunch of families, like millions of families who aren't getting this preventative benefit that keeps much worse things from happening down the line. And, you know, we're not applying technology to that problem. We're using technology to understand how to improve the operations of a government program. And we think that that can happen, like, at much greater scale. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I'm sure uh, people wonder is, you know, why does it take 
you know, a, a, a third party organization like your own to do this when, you know, why doesn't the government actually just do this on its own? Well, I mean, let's give government some credit. I think they're trying to do this on their own. And I meet public servants every day who are trying mm -hmm. very hard to get it right. Um, that question's pretty loaded. And there's <laughs> a lot that we could talk about there. I'll, I mean, you know, one of the problems is that we've made government very, very complex, mm -hmm. um, very risk averse. So, you know, if you look at the legacy systems, or I should say the incumbent systems, they're not really legacy yet, um, that our program sort of sits on top and sort of and simplifies. Um, uh, they are, each of them is a cost about $800 million to build and taxpayers pay $80 million a year in maintenance fees to a vendor for them. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not because public servants are stupid or that they want to waste taxpayer dollars. In fact, the opposite is true in both of those cases. It's because we, the people, really want to government to check a lot of boxes and demonstrate a whole lot of due diligence before they do anything. Um, and that's why we put in incredibly complex procurement rules and other, you know, 17 other flares at various flavors of compliance. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that government is supposed to figure out absolutely every single thing that a software piece of software will do before they take it out to bid and cover a whole host of other things that don't really have anything to do with the quality of the software or its usability. And that takes up 99.9% .9 of the energy um, in taking a software project out to bid. Now, whose fault is that? Well, it's kind of hard to say, because I think it's actually the voters and the general public who have mm -hmm. so long called for making government very, very highly accountable. And I think if we realized that making it that highly accountable would result in such slow and frankly, just really awful software and technology, we might have thought a little bit more about what we were asking for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about it that way, that, um, you know, in some sense, you know, it, it comes about because, you know, it, it, it's, I guess in some sense, it's the same thing that I was talking about at the beginning, where, you know, you look for sort of the one big solution. And so, in a, in a software development world, that one big solution means you have to try to do the impossible, which is think through every possible situation and every possible uh, user interaction in terms of what it would look like. And then you put that, you know, very, very specific thing out to bid, which then creates all these things and doesn't really make it easy for you to to iterate. Uh, and so it's it's interesting then to, you know, to look at, you know, how do you deal with that? And I guess, you know, part of the approach that you're taking, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the approach that you're taking is sort of creating the sort of the new interfaces that that effectively go on top of these legacy, or as you said, not legacy systems, but um, uh, incumbent systems, or I've, actually, I'm, I forget if that was the term that you yeah, used. Yeah, incumbent, yeah. You know, these systems that have been around forever, and that are old and clunky, and not very well suited for purpose, um, and then basically, you know, applying a, a, a much better, you know, front door user interface to make it actually workable. 
Yeah, but that's really only one tactic. I mean, mm -hmm. the, the, the point of doing that is to show what can be, show what's possible. Right. And um, you have to show what's possible because no one believes you otherwise. They literally <laughs> just don't believe that government services can be good. Right. Um, and, but like making a million different front doors, but still relying on the very clunky incumbent systems to actually handle the whole back end isn't a long-term solution. Right. So, you know, we, th this is all about changing the conversation and getting people in government to say, oh my gosh, this is possible to do in this way. Because <laughs> like one of the things people will look at what we do and they'll be like, that must be illegal. Like you must be doing things that are literally illegal um, or you know, non-compliant in a million different ways. The truth is everything we do is completely legal and completely compliant. And th the way you know that is the state of California actually pays us to do this now. <laughs> right. Um, they, in fact, just finally mandated that all California counties have to use us. We've gotten um, three quarters of the counties on board just because it was so clear that what we did was better and worked. Mm -hmm. um, but now the couple that were still recalcitrant will be coming on because of direction from the state. Um, it's absolutely legal, but it also looks like great consumer software. And so once people realize that's the case, then you start getting into a conversation about how can everything be like this? How can, um, you know, how can the incumbent systems become as good as get CalFresh? Right. And how, how much in terms of like the, the lessons that you're learning, um, you know, how much of it is, I, I guess, you know, you can go a few different directions with it. Some of what you're learning from having this interface and looking at how people interact with it and, and whether or not they're actually getting what they, they came for or getting the services that they that they are eligible for, um, how much of that is being used to just, you know, to iterate on the interface that, that you've already built um, and how much of it is being used for that, that sort of larger purpose to to try and you know rethink how these these uh services are delivered in the first place well it, it's, it's a good question and i think a lot of the energy is going towards okay there must be something wrong with our strategy and approach if this is where we always end up in government mm -hmm. is with something as clunky and un, as unusable as well you know pick your pick your <laughs> digital service right right um we, we recently had an example of how it really kind of leapfrogged into a really different conversation more quickly. And I think that's hopefully our future is that the pace of our, you know, our rate of changing the conversation should increase over time as we hit more and more, you know, critical mass, I guess. So um, different example, we had sort of used that same playbook on clearing eligible criminal records starting also mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. Um, the process, if you, if you have a felony that has been um, made no longer a felony by law, um, it's really important that it get changed in your record because it keeps you from getting a job. It keeps you from housing. It keeps you from educational opportunities. Um, it really kind of keeps you in a cycle of poverty and incarceration, even though that thing by law is no longer a felony. And a, a lot of these, by the way, are old marijuana convictions, but there's a mm -hmm. bunch of other convictions that um, were made misdemeanors under Prop 47 in 2014. So California voters said, this is stupid. 
let's not make these felonies anymore because of the, the long-term consequences. Mm -hmm. But the way that government thought about um, changing them now in retrospect seems insane, which is every single human being who may be eligible for relief under this law needs to go to a legal clinic between 9 and uh, 11 on Tuesday morning, find an obscure piece of paper that nobody knows about, try to fill it out. They have to go over to the police department, fill out another form to request their rap sheet, certify that their rap sheet is correct, even though they have no idea what the rap sheet says. And if you or I pulled a rap sheet, we would not be able to understand it either. Um, and basically almost no one who was eligible for this relief was ending up with it because the process was even more cumbersome and confusing than the one I described earlier, trying to do uh, food benefits. And also, like, you really couldn't do it online. So we started by just putting it online, mm -hmm. um, which made it a lot better. And a lot of people could go through this online form, at least to start the process. But, like, finally, we were going, look, you know, you're not going to get the several million people in California who are eligible this relief through this process. It's just, like, never going to happen. Why are we making them fill out a form at all? Like, isn't this just the basically the process of changing a record in a database somewhere. Like what's the form for? Right. And we finally found DA Gascon, uh, George Gascon here in San Francisco was saying that he wanted to quote unquote automatically expunge criminal records as well. So we went and visited him, but what automatic meant was we're not going to make someone come into the office and fill out the forms, but we're going to have, um, our paralegals spend four hours a night, pay them overtime for as many days as we possibly can, pulling down rap sheets off the state database one by one, scanning them for the correct codes. And by the way, it takes five minutes to pull down one rap sheet off the state mm. database using this as the terminal that they have in their office, then scanning them for the correct codes, filling out for them all of the paperwork and then sending it over in bulk over to the courts, which was going to also take, like, instead of taking 100 years, it was going to take, like, five years <laughs> using, you know, overtime and clogging up the right. courts. And we said, look, can't we just suck down all the data in bulk, basically run a very basic al algorithm that can figure out which ones of these are clearly eligible, which one of these are clearly not eligible, and which records have enough, you know, question in them that you're going to want to actually review them. Right. And uh, he's like, well, why can't we do that? And and we went to the state and we, we figured it out. And we just uh, recently announced that we did the first automatic records expungement ever. 8,132 8, people now have no felony record in San Francisco uh, because we were just able to do this. And it was it was really difficult. But the thing that it does is it makes people in government completely rethink what's possible using technology. And what they have thought in the past is technology is something that takes five years to build. It takes, you know, $800 million. I need a team of 50, 60, 100 people to do a procurement. And that's the only way technology works in government, which is as much as a, of a barrier as your, you know, 500 paralegals is a barrier. But what this was, was like a handful of people and a very large spreadsheet.
-hmm. And we need people to think in those terms because there's so much more that's possible for government to do when it knows that that's how you fix a problem. And so, I mean, is some of this, as I listen to you describe this, I mean, some of this just feels like, you know, some of it's just because this is the way government has always been done, right? There's an element of that in the thinking, or at least this is the way government processes when it comes to technology has been done for the last, you know, maybe three or four decades. How, how much of this is that, you know, you just need, you know, the kind of new thinking that, that, you know, that an organization like yours brings, how much of it is that, you know, people who have been in these roles in government for the last three or four decades need to, you know, retire and bring in younger people who actually have, you know, a, a different view of how technology works. How, you know, what, what is the what is the answer to sort of getting past the, the sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the word here, but but, you know, the, the inability for government to realize that it can act this way. I don't think we should rely on the age thing. Like, I've spent enough time sure. in D.C. and met young people who had no, frankly, ability to think in these terms um, that I, I, I just think we're, I think relying on, I mean, everyone says, like, we need these old senators and Congress people to retire. And, like, okay, I, I'm kind of, I mean, that's probably true. But, um <laughs> You know, I, I don't want to be ageist, but there's like a number of reasons that the, you know, there's there's some thinking, some degree of sort of thinking in 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 D.C. that and and in government in general that sort of needs to retire. But like, it isn't about age. It's about, um, I would call it. So so Megan Smith, who was CTO after my boss Todd, mm -hmm. um, calls it TQ technology quotient. There's also um, a term. Um, technology intuition. Like mm. I'm not a programmer or a developer. Um, and some of the people in government who I think get this the most and most make stuff happen in this sort of new playbook are frankly older, <laughs> sure. um, not, you know, not digital natives, but what they, they frankly, what they have is just smarts and courage. And the biggest thing is courage. Because when you do this kind of work, everybody tells you, like literally people tell, have told me my entire career that I'm going to go to jail. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, I remember being in a meeting where this, this guy was like, the, the State Department had applied for the Code for America Fellowship back in the day. And they were like, you're going to go to jail for that. And I was like, <laughs> like, where is this putative procurement jail that you speak of? And for the people in it, like... Yes, people go to jail for actual fraud, but I mean, I mean, but but the truth is, I mean, I'm making fun, but like, really, there's an enormous amount of fear that if yeah. you don't check a box or you do something wrong, there's going to be damage to your career. If you're a career public servant who's you know depending on um, you know on your pension and you get fired for you know, we have seen people get fired for this. Um, you know, get, you get, you get fired and you lose that. That's not a happy outcome for you. And yeah, you do. It really does take people who just say, I don't care how it's been done before. This is how it needs to be done today because our country is falling apart. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, and I'm willing to take that risk. So I, I just think it's like basic common sense and courage is more what we need than any sense that like, you know, we need more. I mean, I love young yeah. people. Don't get me wrong. I'm just sure. like <laughs> young people without courage isn't going to do us any good.
Yeah, no, and, and that's completely fair. And I, I probably should have been more careful in my thinking. And I could, I can name some old, very old people in Congress who I think are great and really knowledgeable and, and excellent on these things. And I can also name some young people in Congress who I think are terrible and problematic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, so I completely get get that argument. And so I think I think you're right that it's sort of this 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 um, you know knowledge and and all this. It reminds me a little bit of and and I've told this story before. I'm not sure if I've told it on the podcast. But, um, you know, one of my very first jobs when I moved to Silicon Valley now over 20 years ago um, was working for this startup that was trying to we were building these software systems for distributing other pieces of software is the simplest way to describe it. And we decided um, that it would be good to get a government contract because it would potentially be a lot of money. And we were a startup in desperate need of money. And so my first job fresh out of college was um, to try and get a government contract. Uh, oh, no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which was a, an awful experience on so many different levels, um, including that, like, you know, sort of right before I was hired to do this, um, the company had, had hired uh, what they referred to as a lobbyist who appeared to be someone who, you know, had been some sort of general in the military in some sense and and my only understanding of what we were paying him lots of money to do was to drink bourbon with the right people and and mm -hmm. figure out a way to to get us uh, a contract without us having to actually bid on it or have like a, a you know we were, we were going to be a subcontractor for somebody who had a GSA uh, set up because we didn't as a tiny startup and there was all of this mess and and the whole thing was turned into a complete disaster, uh, in, including, I remember, a, a, a phone call that where basically this guy had set up all this stuff. We were going to do a deal with the Air Force, of all things. Uh, and we ended up doing a, a, a phone meeting with people from the Air Force and my CTO at the time, um, in which the people from the Air Force uh, explained what they wanted, and our CTO, who was was relatively new, had so little understanding of our own technology, started asking the Air Force people to explain our technology to him, um, which That's awkward <laughs> was incredibly awkward. It was about the time I feel I realized I needed to start looking for another job. Um, but it, it, you know, this process, you know, sort of. You know, I think I, that that experience, uh, in part, just turned me off to the whole idea of like, um, you know, the way in which government buys into technology or understands technology. Um, and I shouldn't obviously be completely jaded based on one experience twenty years ago, but it, it certainly bought into it, and and uh, you know, and, and has played a role in in my thinking on these things. And so I'm I'm sort of always interested in in you know, ways in which the government actually can use technology in an important way. I mean, I think, you know, I certainly am a big fan in general of technology and all of the good things that it enables while recognizing, you know, not, not everything works out great and not, a, not every bit of technology is necessarily used in the best way. But the more that we can do to showcase the good elements of technology, the, the more important I think that is. And so I'm, um, um, you know, I'm excited by projects and, and examples and, and situations where we can show where technology can be used really, really well, uh, which is which is why I, you know, I do <laughs> like, you know, seeing like the, the success stories that, that, that you've had and that you've explained here. Um, I think the the question that, that I'm still sort of left with in, in dealing with this is like, how do we 
you know, how do we expand that and how do we expand this process? I mean, I think, you know, with the examples that you talked about, especially with the, um, uh, Cal Fresh example, I guess is, is what it was called. Mm -hmm. You know, that's one where, you know, the actual constituents are, um, experiencing it and seeing it for real. Um, so, so that touches on their lives. Whereas the San Francisco example, that is mostly happening behind the scenes, right? I mean, part of the idea there is that the, the people who had their records expunged, um, they're, they don't even, they don't even notice the technology cause they're not, they, they're not touching it at all. Right. Um, right. But the, I mean, obviously the government is, is, uh, you know, recognizing what the technology can do. So I, I guess the, the question is, you know, what what other ways can we get these examples more widely known and get more people to adopt this kind of approach to actually using technology in a good way? Well, I should do more podcasts, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I hope I have that kind of kind of pull and power <laughs> with governments. But <laughs> yeah, I'm sure the entire you know civil service and bureaucracy of our country is listening. So everyone, <laughs> please adopt delivery driven government. We'll help you. Uh, go on our website. We explain what it is. Um, no, I mean our basic theory is um, telling government to do things differently has never worked. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Yeah, to some degree, the notion that we're going to pass laws about how to do this um, also, frankly, doesn't work. Um, and I'd love to talk a little bit more about that. There's the idea of sort of unintended consequences. Sure. But, um, you know, we started out um, doing just a year-long fellowship program for people in the tech world to come do a year in government. And um, our, the idea was just, like, do stuff, right? Like... And it was kind of naive. I mean, much like you described, like in our setup here, we didn't really have a full plan, but there has been a long-term view on this mm -hmm. as evidenced now, because it's almost 10 years later. Um, you know, uh, we didn't know exactly where we're going to lead, but we thought it was better to start by doing things. And I mean, actually like writing software and doing projects with government than telling them what we thought needed to be different. And I think that that was, to be honest, a very smart way to do it because um, nothing changes the conversation like actual success. Um, you just get, once you get, once you do something that works. So like, for example, in our very first year on a much, much smaller scale than one of the projects I just told you about, like. There was this little thing in Boston where the, they had changed the rules around how kids were assigned to public schools, and it was essentially a mapping problem. They wanted kids to be able to walk to school more frequently, and so they'd done these sort of walk sheds, and but like they couldn't. It was a mapping problem, but the way they were communicating it to parents was um, by sending them this brochure with all of this data in it, but it didn't, it didn't mm. solve the problem. It didn't help you know where you lived and which school your kids could attend. So we put up a basic map and it just was a 10 week project. Um, and it fixed the problem. You could see, you could type in your address and see which schools your kid could attend. And just that changed people's perception of, um, 
what not only how fast a government project could go, but the fact that it looked like consumer software. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it kind of, a couple of projects like that in that year kind of got us the ability to do another year because it was so, it was so visibly better than anything that existed before that everybody then wanted more of it. And then everyone wants to know how to do this. So our, our, our thesis is show what's possible by making government services so good that they inspire change then help others do it themselves because we can't do them all mm -hmm. but we can teach people what it means to do delivery driven government but they have to already be, be bought in like we can't come in it doesn't start with lecturing or teaching it starts with um, a powerful example um, and then build a movement of people who think that this is important that this is matters to our country and create more and more pressure so that's if, if your question is like how do we scale that's kind of our thesis yeah and, and i think that makes sense and i think you actually you, there are a couple of interesting things in there that, that might be worth exploring and one is you know the idea of you know just doing these projects and that's the kind of thing that i know certainly interests you know the 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 tech or i i now I'm trying to be careful about how I say, you know, what words I. It's I okay. Choose, you don't but... have to be careful. It's good. <laughs> you know the the you know the tech insightful people of the world, right? I mean, part of what excites them is the ability to yeah. they see a problem, just go out and try and you know work on it and fix it. You know, as opposed to the you know having to do a big policy change or or create a you know to to, to you know to move government through the political process is time-consuming and frustrating and and often not not a very pleasant experience uh, in all sorts of ways but actually just you know going out and hacking something together um, is something that is completely understandable completely achievable and can have real results and, and actually show something and so you know enabling situations where you know folks who are used to just tackling problems by hacking something together um, and that you know being able to to do that in a way that actually impacts government and government services i think is is really appealing and also you know on the flip side i mean we've been talking mostly about getting uh you know government people to understand what technology can do for them but it also does the reverse which is gets people who are involved in tech to understand you know how to make government itself better as opposed to the sort of more cynical view that many people in technology have of just like hating on all aspects of government yeah, what, what I want people in tech to do is like, great, go, you know, pick up the laptop and hack something together. But like, that has to be the start of something, sure. not the point of something. And it starts a conversation. Um, and, but yeah, there's a, there's just a lot of follow through. And, and I think what I would love to see is more of Silicon Valley doing that follow through and actually figuring out then what is it they learned by doing that? What relationships did they build? And how can they actually make that become real change, not just a shiny object? So how do you do that? Um, I guess you have to like um, dive in. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, it's so, yeah, I've been doing, I thought this was, I didn't know what was going to happen when I started this org. And sure. now it's sort of like my life's work. And I feel like it's really important and I want everyone to do it. <laughs> but it's also really, really, really hard. I mean, the people that we have... Um, I mean, now I think our world, the Code for America world, is very much like a hybrid of people who are from the government world and people who are from the tech world. And then some people who have always been that hybrid, you know, like mm -hmm. 
there's, there've always been people at this, at this intersection. Sure. I'm just sort of like relatively new to this intersection. Um, but the folks that come in from the tech world really kind of have a common narrative arc, like a, a, a common ex arc of their own experience where they think, okay, I've seen the tech now, I've seen some of the technology, the technology is so bad that the bar is low. So this is going to be easy to fix. And then they have this like cratering time of realizing how hard it is to fix it. Not mm -hmm. just because that technology is like, there are archaeological layers of technology that all rely <laughs> on each other. And so like, yes, it would be easy to like pull out that one thing and replace it. But in the meantime, the entire like Veterans Administration falls down. <laughs> and, they, and but also how hard it is to get stuff to happen and then understanding why those things are hard to make happen, like policy changes, like, you know, like like you cannot stand up an Amazon instance, like it's just stuff like that. Like, but, but that's mm -hmm. all I need to do. And they go through this period of like despair <laughs> <laughs> of, uh, you know, a, a friend of mine calls it like the moment they realize there is no bottom. And, <laughs> and then like we lose half the people during that part of it. <laughs> right. Where they're like, this is, this is folly. And then, and then like half the people make it through that and then become very, very committed to this as the way they're going to see, they're going to make cha positive change in the world at scale, because they also realize that if you do persist and you do make it better, it really affects millions of people's lives in incredibly profound ways. And so I just like want more people to like, A, come in and then B, survive that pit of despair and go into the like commitment to it. I also want to help a bunch of people who don't go all the way into there, but just start to understand what's at stake and just want to support the work and want to, um, want to like believe that government can work and that, and, and that we, we have to just have much more of a focus on that as a society and a little bit, maybe we have to steal a little bit of energy and attention away from the bickering, uh, you know, mm -hmm. that, that goes on in the political sphere. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, th I think it's important. And I sort of mentioned this in passing in the intro is just the idea that like, you know, everyone focuses on the sort of big political things, but there's so much other stuff in terms of just how government works on a day to day basis. Um, and, and a lot of that could be done better. And, you know, there's, there's an argument there that, if the the basic functions that government is supposed to handle worked better and in a more user friendly way and a more you know user responsive manner that people might actually um you know trust their government a little bit more and you could argue whether or not that's a good thing but i i would like to think that uh you know a government that works properly is probably a better thing than a government that everyone cynically you know likes to hate on and then proceeds to just blame one political party or another for that well um, exactly i mean we um it's we're currently in, but I think can pull ourselves out of a super negative spiral on this trust and faith in government thing where um, people, as you said, see government not working well. They get frustrated. It could be at the DMV or it could be, um, in, for instance, in the welfare system with the folks mm -hmm. that are sort of most marginalized in our society. Um, and in fact, there's now academic research that shows that people who have a very negative experience with um, 
welfare benefits, like so like SNAP, like what we work on in Medicaid, mm-hmm. which we work on as well, um, actually learn from that, that engaging with government isn't useful. And one of the ways that expresses itself is that they don't vote. And mm. so if we actually don't have, I mean, I think most people would agree that having low rates of voting in this country is also eroding our sense of, a, you know, an accurate, a, 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 a robust democracy, that we've got to switch that, um, that negative spiral. Um, nobody thinks about fixing SNAP and Medicaid as a way to increase voting, but I actually think that the evidence is there. Yeah. Um, I, I think, there, yeah, there's, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, I did want to follow up on one thing that you, you mentioned earlier, which is that um, you thought, you know, passing laws to try and push this kind of these kinds of efforts forward was probably not a good idea and could have unintended consequences. And and said you had some some commentary on that. Um, I, I I guess I'm I'm curious what that is. I I think I agree with you, but I, I'd like to maybe unpack that a little bit if you want. Well, I certainly shouldn't say that passing laws to address this is not is it is blanket a bad idea. Um, there's certainly the um, the legislative system can be used to promote this agenda. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I, I think where I'm, I'm, where I have sort of studied this a lot, and um, is that very often we pass laws to force certain kinds of behavior mm-hmm. in the bureaucracy, not understanding how complex the bureaucracy is, <laughs> and realizing that there are unintended consequences to everything we do. So, yeah. I mean, you were talking about this quote unquote lobbyist that was hired, you know, to get your mm-hmm. firm this contract and how he seemed to, you know, drink bourbon for a living. <laughs> right. right. Um, like, isn't that like, and that is not entirely uncharacteristic. I mean, <laughs> this is, right. I'm not saying that's the, I don't, I don't think government is frankly as corrupt as most people think it is. Sure. As they say, never ascribe to um, malice what you can ascribe to, incompetence right Right. like we mostly just do this to ourselves but they're like we have a million laws Mm -hmm. that are designed all designed to make sure that the the government contract doesn't go to the guy who bought the team bourbon right like (laughs) right so like if we think that those things but what happens is that you get companies who are really good at understanding the rules and playing yep. the game. And unfortunately, some of those companies are much better at playing the game of procurement and yeah. compliance with, you know, quote unquote ethics than they are at building software. And so um, by creating all of those rules, we've actually created, you know, an outcome that we nobody wanted. And so it's not that I don't think we should pass laws. It's just that... Um, you can even see this that in, in, in areas that are not related to procurement at all, but like, um, uh, you know, there's a law in, I think it's like the Klinger Cohen Act of 1980 or something like that, that specifies that all government technology needs to use an enterprise service bus. Hmm. Well, I mean, that might have been like generally kind of a good idea, <laughs> but like it is actually not the right thing everywhere. Right. And so... You, you can see then like these little projects, little teeny pieces of software actually in the Air Force, for instance, and, and everywhere 
that need to use some like completely off the shelf stand, you know, internet standard protocol that's tiny and lightweight and easy. But for some reason, you know, well, because it's in the law somewhere, the they actually have to go out and go to bid and you know be built by a government contractor for what turns into millions of dollars because it's somewhere someone's going no it has to have an enterprise service bus and that thing doesn't have an enterprise service bus like <laughs> what right. Right. how did like and you go this is just not sane but it's actually true that is in law somewhere <laughs> right so i would just think there's like a lot of caution around i i would just say yeah. You know, the one law that is always in effect is the law of unintended consequences. And, you know, one of the things I would like this whole agenda to move into, if we talk about user-centered, iterative, and data-driven technology, we also need user-centered, iterative, and data-driven policy that adapts. So when we learn that it has this really pernicious unintended consequence, there's a way for the law to adapt that doesn't involve somehow getting the attention of the members of Congress on this nerdy, weird little thing that no one wants to pay attention to, because otherwise we are stuck with it forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, it's definitely one of those things with technology that, and it shows up in other aspects of law as well. And, you know, uh, we've certainly talked about it in the past with like privacy laws and like, uh, ECPA, the, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, which, you know, treats any, uh, message that has been on a server for 180 days is abandoned, um, not recognizing that one day we would have cloud services everywhere. And your Gmail, of course, is going to stay on a server for more than 180 days, but it is certainly not abandoned. Um, but, you know, anytime that, you know, people try and write legislation around technology, you, you often see those kinds of, you know, weird anomalies that create all sorts of headaches down the road and then, then become a huge hassle to, to try and change. Uh, and, and therefore often they don't get changed. Um, so I can, I can totally see that. Um, but anyways, I, I do think this has been a really interesting conversation. I'm not going to take up uh, much more of your time. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to, to discuss this and, and talk about all the work that you've done and and uh, getting people and governments in particular, but technologists and, and everyday other people, citizens as well, to be thinking about you know what does delivery-driven government look like and how can we use technology in, in ways that are really useful. So um, you know, thanks for, for certainly for all the work that you do and also for taking time to join us on the podcast. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your being willing to talk about your traumatic past in government technology. Yes, yes. Deep. It's been buried deep down inside me, eating away for all these years. (laughs) And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to the podcast. And we'll be back next week. Grab a shovel and dig up.